It's a great day to live for Jesus. This is the In the Word podcast with Pastor Mike Grover, a chapter-by-chapter devotional journey through the New Testament where we will browse the background, discover the doctrine, and practice the principles of God's Word for us today. Uh, We're over in John chapter number 17 this morning, and this is really an incredible chapter where Jesus opens up his heart to us unlike anywhere else in Scripture. The entire chapter is a prayer, and it's a prayer word for word spoken by Jesus Christ. Not only is it the longest prayer of Christ in Scripture, but it's also the longest prayer in the entire Bible. Now, we know that we typically refer to uh, the disciples' prayer as the Lord's Prayer over in Matthew, where it says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's really the disciples' prayer. That's where the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. I think the real Lord's Prayer is John chapter 17, because it's Jesus actually praying. Most often it's referred to as the high priestly prayer because Jesus is seen here as the great high priest who is interceding for his people on earth. And it's given in Jesus's last night on earth. And by the way, when you're reading about Jesus last night on earth and you follow his journey with the disciples, you end up in the Garden of Gethsemane where he is arrested and taken. And in the garden, Jesus is praying there as well. Some people confuse this prayer with his prayer in the garden. This prayer took place before they got to the Garden of Gethsemane because we see in chapter 18 uh, that they had not yet crossed over the Kidron Valley to come up into Gethsemane. So this prayer is prayed before the Garden of Gethsemane after leaving the upper room somewhere along the way they stopped and and jesus prayed this prayer now there's several themes in this prayer and i would say the two greatest themes number one is that the father would be glorified and number two that the disciples would be unified and one of the cool things about this prayer in it is jesus is praying for his apostles that are right there with him But then he says, I don't just pray for these alone, but for all that will believe on me through their word. So it's actually a direct indication that Jesus did not just pray this prayer for the people that were with him in that time, but he prayed it for us, for every person who is a believer of Jesus Christ through all time. Now, this entire chapter is actually the first scriptures I ever memorized. When I was in college, one of the assignments in a New Testament survey class that I was in was that we had to memorize an entire chapter out of the Gospels. Five verses a week, had to write it out. And on our midterm exam, we had to write out the entire chapter out of the Gospels. Then we had to do the same thing the second half of the semester with a chapter out of the epistles. So my two chapters, I memorized John chapter 17, and out of the epistles, I memorized Romans chapter 6. Now that was a long time ago, and although I still have much of this chapter committed to memory, I really need some helps along the way uh, to get me through the rest of the verse. So generally, if you start me in the verse, I can get through the rest of it. But it's just an incredible, wonderful passage of scripture that really shows us the intimacy of Jesus and his heart for us. Now, the part I want to look at this morning is beginning in chapter 14 through 21, really about the believer's relationship to the world. Now, look what Jesus said in John 17, verse 14. He said, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. 
As you have sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through your truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus really has a lot to say here about the believer's relationship to the world. Now, we talk about the world in Scripture. We could be talking about the world of nature, right? The plants and the animals. That's not what he's talking about here uh, when God created the world, right? Uh, we could be talking about the world of people. For example, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's not talking about, you know, cows and chickens. It's he loved the world of people. Here it's talking about the world system. The word translated world, the Greek word is cosmos. And it's the idea of an orderly system or arrangement. And so when Jesus speaks of the world, he's speaking of this godless system of this age that really sets the tone for people and for life. Hey, if you're a committed Christian living in this world, you know what I'm talking about. You sense that tension and that pressure of, of really not necessarily people's behaviors, although it does extend to behaviors. It's just kind of just the philosophy of selfishness and humanism that really captivates the world, world leaders, their decisions, um, philosophy, etc. So here's how the Bible teaches in our relationship to the world. First of all, God calls us out of the world. Verse 14 says, I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So when we are saved, that is God calling us out of the world. But then you know what he does once he calls us out of the world? He takes the world out of us. Look at verse 16 and 17. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Well, what does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be set apart for a holy purpose. So Jesus says once we are saved, once we are taken out of the world, he wants to take the world out of us. He wants to sanctify us. He wants to change us. And how does he change us? He changes us through God's word. So God takes us, calls us out of the world. God takes the world out of us through sanctification. But you know what he does? He sends us back into the world in evangelism. Look at verses 18 through 21. As you have sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Look at verse 21. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what's the believer's relationship to the world? Well, generally speaking, we're called out of the world for a distinct purpose. God takes the world out of us. He sanctifies us through his word, through his truth. He cleans us. He changes us. He sets us apart. But why does he do that? He does it so we can go into the world as his witnesses that the world may believe. Now, it's not that he calls us out of the world and then he completely cleans us up before he sends us into the world. Actually, he sends us into the world immediately. So that kind of sanctifying sending process is taking place simultaneously each and every day of our life while we are here on this earth. So, you know, the subject of the world is really prominent in this scripture. And I thought, man, the subject of worldliness, I was thinking about that. 
Uh, what exactly is worldliness? So God takes the world out of that. You know, I was thinking about some historical examples of worldliness. Did you know in the 1800s it was considered worldly for a Christian to read the newspaper on Sundays? Yeah, getting a newspaper on Sunday and doing that would have been considered worldly. Wearing bright colored clothes or certain styles would have been considered worldly. So much so that you have sex like the Amish who completely saw that as being worldly and so they won't wear really any bright colors at all. And so there's historic examples of what people considered worldly. I grew up in New Jersey. They had back then what was called Sunday blue laws. You weren't even allowed when I was a kid to buy clothes on Sunday in New Jersey. Liquor stores were closed. The only thing you could buy on Sunday was essential items. I'm talking about the 1970s. There was a town next to the town I lived and it was called Ocean Grove. And Ocean Grove was kind of like a Methodist community. And on Sundays, you were not allowed to park your car on the road. So before midnight, Saturday night, you had to take your car out of Ocean Grove and people would park in the nearby towns and walk back. And they would actually have chains that went across the entrances into the town. You, and it was a beach community. Men were, you really weren't allowed to be on the beach on Sunday in beach attire. I remember men were not allowed to walk through the streets without a shirt on. I'm talking about the 1970s in New Jersey. Why? Because in that community, in that communal environment, those things were considered somehow being worldly. I thought when I became a Christian, even in the early 80s, in the, in the more conservative group that I came was reached out of, the color of your shirt could be considered worldly. Man, preachers wore white shirts because, you know what, colored shirts was a little edgy. Um, your shoe color, I remember I was in Bible college and one of the guys had this really cool looking pair of light gray leather shoes. I remember how many of the guys gave him a hard time about his shoes because they weren't black or, or brown or cordovan, right? Um, shoe color, hair length, men's hair too long. If there's hair on your ears, there's sin in your heart. Women's hair too short. If you're going to cut it, you might as well shave it. What was that? It was based on misinterpretation of certain scriptures. Um, pants on women. If a woman wore pants, she was an abomination to the Lord. Women could not wear breeches. Man, dancing was considered a sin, even though 92% of all scripture in the Bible about dancing is positive, and there's a narrow part that's negative, all dancing became sin. Going to the movies became sin because you're supporting Hollywood. Skating at one time was considered sinful. Uh, I think about uh, Dennis. Dennis, you'd get a kick out of that. Uh, Miss Kay Frank was telling me when she was growing up, her preacher would preach and say skating was nothing more than dancing on wheels. Skating was considered worldly. Um, boys wearing shorts. I can remember taking my youth group to certain youth conferences and the boys were not allowed to wear shorts because that was considered being worldly. Music styles, whether you had drums or not, was considered worldly. Even using a guitar in some circles was considered being worldly. People singing in church, holding their microphone instead of using a stand, that was considered worldly. So I think it's interesting because the human definitions of worldliness have changed over and over again. But you know, God's definition of worldliness is clear and it was given us right here. What is worldliness? It's life apart from God's word. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. What defines us of, as not being of the world and what is it that brings the anger and the angst of the world against believers? It's the word. So worldliness 
scripturally is living life apart from the word, not apart from certain traditions or customs, not a part of man's opinion, but apart from God's word. Because living life apart from God's word, man, that leads to a love of the world. First John 2 says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And he says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says, for all that is in the world, and he lists three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but are of the world. Well, what are those three things? Lust of the eyes, that's a passion. That's desire for passions. Lust, of, I mean, that's lust of the flesh is the desire for passion. Lust of the eyes, the desire for possession. The pride of life, the desire for prestige. And so when we live life apart from his word, man, that leads to the love of pleasure, the love of possession, the love of prestige. So worldliness here is defined life apart from the word is life that is prioritizing pleasure, possessions, and prestige above prioritizing the word of God in my life. That's what worldliness is. It's living life without the true center or focus of what is God's word for me in my pleasure. What is God's word for me in my possessions? What is God's word for me in my prestige and elevation? So Jesus prayed for us, verse 20 and 21, not to be out of the world, but to be in the world with his word. So the word for today is this, don't be worldly, be wordy. <laughs> Prioritize God's word to yourself above everything else. Thank you for listening today to In the Word. Join us every Tuesday and Friday for new episodes as we continue our devotional journey through the New Testament.